0: Good morning everyone, and welcome to a special edition of a vision for you today is sunday february ninth two thousand and twenty the share i d numbers for friday february the seventh are the following for the seven a m eastern big book study fourteen thousand and eighty nine that's one four zero eight nine and for the ten a m eastern Big Book Study 14,090. That's 14090. This morning, A Vision for You presents Put Down the Stick, Finding Compassion for Ourselves and Others. The Big Book teaches that to get over drinking, for us, compulsive overeating, will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The 12 steps, as outlined in the Big Book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific and proven method for producing a transformation, a change in our perception, a change in the way we think, feel, and especially behave. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of our lives are cast to one side, and a new set of conceptions, ideas, and attitudes begin to dominate us. We begin to live by new codes, such as love, tolerance, and compassion. The secret of these 12 Steps and principles which are spiritual in nature is that yes indeed it is possible to be able to effectuate such a dramatic change in our character and our values we have been taken out of the world of self and have entered the world of the spirit the rewards and benefits of living such a design are such that we live a better life in recovery than we could ever have had, we never had our illness. We experience wholeness, soundness, a reordered life, a new life. Our pain and suffering is turned into healing for ourselves and then for others. We enjoy a rich and rewarding life. The kind of person we had dreamed of being someday, we have at last become. Joining us today to speak on these rewards and benefits of the program of recovery is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from California. John is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, carrying the message of recovery wherever and whenever he can, and it's with great delight and appreciation that I welcome John to the line. Good morning, John.
1: Good morning, Leo. This is John Kiernan, recovered compulsive eater in Los Angeles. Um, Good to be here. Excuse if I have a slight rasp in my voice. I'm getting over cold. Um, So anyway, uh, today I don't think I'm going to spend very much time talking about food or compulsive eating. I'm not even going to spend a lot of time talking about any particular step or steps. Uh, Instead, I'd like to just talk about the benefits, you know, the rewards of working the steps and living life in a 12-step manner. Now, i had a number of people tell me in the last few years how much they think I've changed since they first met me. And, you know, most of those people weren't around when I came to my first program and I was, you know, something of a raving maniac. But, you know, them telling me that is a perfect example of what's written in the Spiritual Experience Appendix of the big book. You know, in there it says, quite often friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly been brought about by himself alone. Well, okay. I'm not exactly a newcomer, but I think those changes continue to happen as long as we're working on ourselves and definitely not having been brought about by himself alone is, is perfect for me. You know, I always say that, you know, you know, this has been due, the change has been due to, to, uh, the one thing, uh, well, 13 things, actually, the 12 Steps and the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I say that because I know before I came to my first program, I needed, I absolutely needed to binge and to drink and drug. It was the only way life was tolerable. And when I, you know, when I say life, I mean, of course, my perception of that life at that time. And that perception was built on a lifetime of negative thinking. You know, this negative thinking was something I inherited from my parents. You know, parents had very few parenting skills and even few less uh, adulting skills, you know.
2: I like the joke
1: that, that I was raised by wolves. You know, I was anxious and I was fearful because I'd been raised in a home where very few real world coping skills have been taught to me, you know. And then as an adult, I was then even more anxious and fearful because I'd been shoved down into a scary world where none of those interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence that's needed to live life as an adult, you know, given to me. More importantly, I'd been shoved down into that scary world where I had little or no control over things. And the result was that I did everything I could to control everyone and everything in my orbit, uh, and I didn't do it to be a jerk or to be obnoxious. I did it because on some level, I felt it was a key to my continued survival. You know, I tried to control so many things over which I had no real control. And then I spent little or no time looking at myself and my part in things. In other words, I was, I was living a reverse serenity prayer life. Well, you know, with that mindset, is it any wonder that I wanted to numb out something? You know, Anything. Well, luckily, when I got sober, I had a book that told me I didn't have to live that way anymore. And in that book, I learned about steps. And to me, the steps are brilliant, not only in the substance of each step, but also in the order in which they're laid out. When we go through them, as laid out in the big book, and AA 12 and 12, um, they can be a way to affect meaningful change in our life. You know, having done a fourth and fifth step I found myself then having to confront that list of character defects once I hit step six. Now, as much as I like to quote the big book, when I got to step six and seven, there's only one paragraph each on them in the big book. So I moved to a secondary text for me, and that was the AA 12 and 12. Now, I used this 12 and 12 because it was the only 12 and 12 around when I started. But then the thing is, fear made up an overwhelming number of items on that last column of my fourth step. Then, in an exercise given to me by a sponsor, I drilled down further on each of those defects on that list. You know, it led me to seeing my one main underlying fear, well, and that was fear of not being good enough. And that then drove other fears, like fear of not living up to the standards expected of me by society and everyone else, fear of not measuring up as a man, or should I say my perception of what? Society wanted in a man, fear of not being good enough partner, fear of not being a good enough provider, you know, essentially fear of not being a good enough human being. And I did a special edition in October 2016 on how fear holds the foundations of my character defects. I won't belabor this as much in this talk. Combine all of those fears with a horrible self-image, and I found myself in a vicious cycle. You know, I knew on some level that my actions, you know, how my character defects were manifesting themselves were not helpful, sometimes harmful to others, which made me feel even worse about myself. And that talk was constantly in my head. I had a sponsor who identified it as a radio station. (laughs) He called the radio station KFUK, all negativity all the time. You know, for those of you east of the Mississippi. I guess that would be WFDK. (laughs) Anyway, I laughed when he said it because I knew exactly what he meant. You know, the reality, of course, is that even the best 12-step people, people we look up to and whose words we hang on to and write down, have one thing in common. They're human beings. And I can guarantee you every one of them has done something within the last week that wasn't a stellar example of living life in a 12-step manner. You know, are they hypocrites? No, they're human beings. You know, some of the most revered people in history, John F. Kennedy, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, have had flaws when you look into the details of their lives. But, you know, it didn't diminish the good they did. It just reminds us all that they're human beings. They were human beings. You know, it's incredibly hard to go through life without having a day where you're not resentful, dishonest, afraid, or thinking of yourself most of the time. In some ways... These principles that are talked about in the big book mean unwinding impulses that are literally hardwired into our DNA. This is especially true with selfishness and self-centeredness. You know, we come from a line of humans that go back to when we first walked on two legs and every one of our ancestors was instilled with an instinct for self-preservation. And that meant putting yourself first. You know, I might very well be descended from some caveman that pushed his best friend in front of a saber toothed tiger so he could escape and live. You know, that's a pretty lousy thing to do, but you know, I'm here as a result of that. But then we come to a program that says, rightfully so, that the way to recovery and peace is to be willing to step away from that kind of thinking. We have to learn to be able to think of others' welfare at least as much, if not more, than our own. You know, beginning when we start doing this, it seems like an intellectual exercise, but as we start doing this more and more, we begin to see how our lives and our outlooks change for the better. And in particular, how we feel about ourselves changes. And a lot of that comes as a result of the third step. Now, for those of you who have trouble with the concept of, quote, turning our will and our lives over the care of a higher power, I'd like to reframe it for you. Think of the third step as simply removing the blockage of self. You know, thinking of others means having the faith that if I give to you, metaphorically, half of my meager ration of bread, that my higher power is going to make sure that I get taken care of and that I won't starve. To me, the building blocks of repairing and rebuilding our emotional and spiritual lives comes from the factory of self-love and self-compassion. Now, that might sound hokey, but I believe it's true. The more self-love and self-compassion you have, the less people can hurt you. If you dig far enough down by working the steps to get to that basic level of fear that most of us have, you know, that fear of not being enough, we can begin rebuilding ourselves on a sturdier foundation for recovery. You know, all those fears I spoke about earlier generated loads of character defects, which were, you know, just feelings. Feeble attempts to compensate for how I really felt about myself. I and I, what I felt was less than, and I would compensate for those actions. Would compensate through actions like uh, I don't know, ego and 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 know-it-allism. You know, if I could flaunt some of those things that I felt were strengths, perhaps you wouldn't see behind the curtain to see the real me. You know, I felt I was the only one who saw the real me, and it was pretty ugly. So I had to do everything in my power to make sure you didn't see it, too. You know, it's like one of those animals in the wild that puff themselves up to look larger than they really are in an attempt to scare away predators, you know, because otherwise the predators would just see how small and helpless they really are, you know, just like I was. And another destructive aspect of that kind of thinking is it made me a perfectionist. You know, since I wasn't as good as you, the only way I could be sure to be as good as you was to be perfect, because there's nothing better than perfect. Now, of course, perfectionism is just both crazy-making and fruitless. Because nobody's perfect, and that led only to me feeling even worse about myself for not hitting those impossible hit goals. So how did I get such a dismal view of the, quote, real me? Well, in my opinion, there was no seminal event, but rather a lifetime of continuing to reinforce that old, old script that I wasn't enough. You know, I spoke in an earlier special edition about the concept of confirmation bias. You now, for those who haven't heard of it, it was especially virulent in terms of self image. And in this case, it involved me scan, scanning all of my actions in everyday life to continue to look for the validation of that negative self-talk, while being oblivious to any positive thing that didn't reinforce my negative view of myself. And I think for a lot of us, we're raised in household environments where the seeds of these negative views of ourselves are planted. And it might very well be that this planting wasn't done through actions that were malevolent, but they were instilled in us nonetheless. So what was the basis for my horrible self-image Simple. For me, it was my weight. You know, not just my weight now or for a number of years, but, but my weight when I was in my disease and especially when I was a fat kid. You know, I've been a fat adult. I've been a fat kid. And being a fat kid is much, much worse. You know, kids are brutal. I mean, I was called every name in the book. I was ridiculed, you know, even by teachers. I would be, get beat up for being fat. Well, you know, if that many people are telling me I'm a piece of garbage, I mean, it's got to be true, right? You know, sometimes it's even parents telling you you have to lose weight or well-meaning parents trying to bribe you with gifts or promises if you lose weight. Now, even those best intentions come with a crushing implicit statement. You're not good enough just the way you are now. Even as adults, as adults, we get a subtler form of that abuse I got as a kid. You know, little snickers behind your back or raised eyebrows if you're seen eating something other people think you shouldn't be eating. Again, even well-meaning friends who offer, quote, helpful suggestions that lead back to the same thought, that we're not good enough to walk this earth at the weight we are right now. Now, it doesn't matter that all these people criticizing or berating us have their own form of self-sickness. I mean, after all, a person who feels good about themselves doesn't have to deride others, unless they do it to feel better about themselves. And what does that tell us about them? That they don't feel good enough about themselves either. At the end of the day, their motivation is still a moot point when it comes to us, whatever their motivation was, The result was the same for us. It hurt, and it hurt a lot. And one of the reasons it hurt so much is that on some level we agreed with them. You know, anytime someone insults us and we feel hurt, there's a part that agrees with that person insulting us, even if it's totally wrong. For example, if I tell you that you have the ugliest green hair I've ever seen, your response is going to be like, oh, (laughs) you know, what you wouldn't feel is hurt because you know you don't have green hair. But if somebody says, hey, you look like gained some weight, we're going to feel bad, you know, even if it's not true. Why? I think because feeling bad about ourselves, for many of us, is our default behavior. And that negative statement just adds to our confirmation bias. Even today, we carry that confirmation bias into our own self-examination. We find example after example of ourselves not being good enough. Why? Well, because we're human beings, and there will always be examples there like that. I think how we treat ourselves today comes from how we were treated early on. And just like a relay race, that baton of the view of ourselves was passed to us at some point, And we continued to believe what we learned as kids. Now, instead of others telling lies about us, we tell lies about ourselves to ourselves. Part of working through the steps is to help us break that pattern and to be able to look at ourselves with more objective eyes. You know, as I've told many a sponsee after listening to their fifth step, you're not the best in the world, but I'm sorry to break it to you, you're not the worst either. You know, after we clean out the garbage of our past in the fourth and fifth steps, we look at our defects of character. I'm not a fan of the phrase defects of character because it seems to imply that part of us is defective. If we examine them, a great deal of those character defects have been with us since childhood. You know, children don't set about to develop behaviors that will later be seen as character defects. In my mind, we develop those behaviors as defense mechanisms, or maybe coping mechanisms is a better phrase. We therefore need to stop and consider ourselves as we were as children. You know, for those of us who grew up in dysfunctional households, these were not abnormal behaviors. They were normal reactions to an abnormal environment. The fact that we want to correct these should be seen as applaudable. We go to meetings, we work the steps, not only to learn how to not indulge in our addiction, but also how to become better people. Think of what kind of world this would be if everyone spent at least a little part of their time trying to be better people. Imagine a world where all people everywhere stopped in their tracks and promptly admitted when they were wrong. Well, sadly, that's one of the things we can't change, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to change the thing we can ourselves. Living a program life means holding ourselves to a higher standard than other people need to hold themselves. But, you know, this action, it's great for self-esteem and self-compassion. You know, getting more and more self-esteem should be a natural byproduct of working and living the steps. What I was taught early on in the program was that true self-esteem comes through doing esteemable actions. For example, in the program, there's a reading called Just for Today. And in it, there's a line that says, I will do somebody a good turn and not get found out. If anyone knows of it, it will not count. To me, that's about doing good for good's sake, not for the ego stroke of getting adulation for your actions. And the real benefit of doing such actions is an internal feeling of well-being. You know, it's a wonderful little boost to self-esteem. I think about those people who told me, you know, that I've changed in recent years. And I think the main component of that is how we think about myself now. You know, the program really did work wonders, even though I didn't think I was doing anything. How I feel about myself has changed. You know, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin now. I know I'm a good person. I know I don't deliberately do things harmful to people. You know, I might accidentally harm someone through ignorance, but then the program's taught me to take corrective measures as soon as I recognize them. You know, the real beauty of the 10th step is that it helps us see the benefit of quickly making things right and then putting it behind us. We take the incident as a learning experience with the commitment to do better next time. And thus, we increase the ratio of time that we're happy with our actions versus unhappy. You know, knowing we've done something wrong and not addressing it will continue to weigh us down until we we properly admit it. You know, as I thought about my change, however, I realized there was more to it than just simply self-esteem. In fact, it was slightly different. It definitely came, though, as a result of working steps. You know, one of the results of working the six and seven steps is that I could see this list of items I had to work on. And the benefit of those steps came from no longer believing I was terminally unique. As I heard the concept of humility put best,
3: Humility is
1: simply having an objective view of yourself and your place in the world. You're not at the top of the heap. You're not at the bottom. You're just another bozo on the (laughs) bus. You know, in reading the big book, one of the lines that really hit me is in Dr. Paul's story, Acceptance is the Answer, and it's on page 417, but it's not the acceptance paragraph that most people know, but it's the one that immediately follows it. And it says, when I criticize me or you, I am criticizing God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. Now, for years, I spoke this line at meetings and retreats, but only really about the part where I was talking about judging you. But that's not what it says. It says me or you. When I'm criticizing myself, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. In other words, I'm right where God wants me today. Now, that's not where I want to be. But perhaps I'm here to learn something. You know, and that paragraph also says there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us. And, you know, that brings me to one of the main revelations I had recently. It involved the concept of self compassion as opposed to self esteem. You know, and in hearing about this concept, I realized that this is the main thing that's changed in me, and that is. Given me that feeling I'm okay in my own skin today. So what is the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem? Well, let's first talk about self-esteem. Believe it or not, there's a certain judgment in the concept of self-esteem. You know, when I think about my actions and whether they're good or bad, which is, you know, the basis of self-esteem, I often start putting conditions on whether I'm a good or bad person. And a lot of those conditions are absolutes. Now, obviously, there are some absolutes we can all agree to that are good or bad. You know, nobody is going to see somebody identified as a murderer or a kidnapper or a child molester and think, well, they must have had some reason. I mean, you know, moral relativism has its limits. But since the beginning of time, our feelings of right and wrong were guided by some external dictum. You know, the first one most of us heard of were the Ten Commandments. Now, growing up Catholic, there seemed to be a never-ending list of mortal and venial sins. Now that I'm Jewish, there are some in my faith who see 613 mitzvot or commandments in the Bible that need to be followed. Even in our program, we can sometimes see how working the steps can reinforce a bad image. In our attempts to follow the concept of living a 12-step life, we sometimes set the bar too high. I mean, it wasn't long ago. Even with long-term abstinence and even longer time in program, I would read the list concerning the ten step on page eighty-six and get discouraged. I would read that list and get down on myself for the answers I gave. You know, were we were we resentful, <coughs> selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Well, yes, 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 and yes. Do we owe an apology? Well, quite a few, actually. Were we kind and loving toward all? Well, quite a few, but all? Hell no. <laughs> Could we have done better? Well, where do I start? <laughs> We're be we thinking of ourselves most of the time. Well, I don't know about most of the time, but a lot of the time. And then the book tells me that I gotta be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection. Well, how can anyone not be after comparing themselves to that list?
2: And I would beat myself
1: up about this. Look how long you've been in programming, you're still answering the questions this way. What it took a long time for me to understand was that all oh, of these things listed in the big book are ideals. They're ideals toward which we strive, but none of us ever get there. Well, get there for every one of those things all the time. Why? Again, because we're human. So if I'm basing my concept of good and bad, which in turn affects my self-esteem, and I'm using any of those lists I mentioned to judge myself or, well, then I'm cooked. I mean, even the Ten Commandments. You know, well, some of them, you know, do I always keep holy the Sabbath? Hardly. Some people would say I'm breaking that third commandment when I flip on the TV to watch a football game on a Saturday or Sunday. You know, I'm guilty because I watched the pigskin get thrown around. By the way, touching a pigskin, one of those 613 mids, (laughs) oh. So do I bear false witness or lie, to use more modern terms? No, no, I never lie. Wait, that's a lie. Do I covet my neighbor's goods? Well, according to the catechism I read as a kid, this means any type of envy must be banished from my heart. Well, sorry, but there's that whole being a human being thing raising its ugly head again. Self-compassion, though, takes another tack. I have to learn to quit comparing myself to absolute lists created by others. Instead, I compare myself to the concept of being human. Now, I'm not talking about comparing myself to specific human beings, but to humanity as a whole. In other words, I grade the feelings about myself based on the human curve. I learn to stop the negative self-talk and self-criticism that's generated by comparing myself to some ideal I can never reach, or, you know, never reach consistently. Self-esteem refers to the degree to which we evaluate ourselves positively compared to those absolutes, it represents how much we like or value ourselves, and that's often based on comparison with others. What self-compassion says, at its core, is this. Let go of who you think you should be and just be who you are. Now, At the end of my days, will I look back and think I spent my life trying to be what I thought people wanted me to be rather than who I really was. Getting to that point, however, does mean smashing that I'm not good enough just the way I am story that was planted in me. You know, what the work of the steps and continued growth is definitely possible. And another benefit of this is an important quality, authenticity. You become secure in who you are, and you don't have to be what you think other people want you to be. Not only is it an easier way to live, but people will sense that awesome authenticity, you know, and it's quite a likable quality. Another byproduct of this way of thinking concerns taking criticism. The more you like yourself, the less you take criticism personally. Now, this outlook of myself doesn't turn me into a sociopath where no matter what I do, I say, I like myself, therefore, and I can't do anything wrong. No, but it does allow me to consider the criticism given to me as criticism of my actions, not of myself. As the old saying goes, the difference between guilt and shame is that I have guilt when I do something bad, but I have shame when I think I am something bad. And One of the ways we can feel better about ourselves is in knowing that we're working towards becoming better people by working the steps. We look at our character liabilities and we continue to work on them. And again, we realize we can only work to do better, to accept that patient improvement talked about in the AA 12 and 12. In the end, only my higher power can totally remove them, but I have to do my part to continue to attempt to diminish them as much as possible. You know, if I can work to remove a character defect, say 90% of the time, then maybe someday my higher power will push that number to 100% and then that defect will be removed. To me, the idea of finding a way to like or or love ourselves is rooted in balancing the idea that we continue to strive to be better people, but realizing we'll probably never get to perfection, and that's okay. If I try to be the best person I can be, I have to be satisfied with the results. After all, when I criticize me or you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. The important thing about feeling good about ourselves is in simple knowing that we're on the road, you know, the road to becoming better people. And when it's done with others, like here, it's a pretty nice road to be on. And again, what a world it would be if everyone was on this road. (laughs) But then again, being on this road means not judging others for not being on this road, just that we're doing what's right for rights' sake. The byproduct of getting self-compassion is that you begin to develop more compassion for others. And this becomes even more pronounced as we have more and more of that burden of self removed. For one thing, we don't take wrongs done to us so personally either. And we therefore don't carry those wrongs around with us long after the fact. Many of us have had wrongs done to us inadvertently. As a friend once said, don't attribute to malevolence what can be better attributed to ignorance. Besides, how many times have I inadvertently done a wrong to another person? Well, for one thing, I almost assuredly only know a fraction of the amount of inadvertent wrongs I've done. You know, might I have cut someone off in traffic and when I heard a honk, assumed it was for somebody else? You know, that kind of honk when people other people off in traffic? I mean, even though most OA meetings don't say it here in L.A. At my AA meetings, we mostly end with the Lord's Prayer. And I have no opinion on whether it's appropriate for meetings, but there is one line in the Lord's Prayer that means more to me than any other line in any prayer, and that is, forgive us our trespasses as we would forgive others. In other words, if I want to be forgiven for my humanness and foibles, I have to be willing to forgive others for their humanness and foibles. You know, at the end of the day, I believe all of us in this world were just little kids running around in these adult suits and none of us got the manual. You know, the manual of life that we're all missing that could help us get through life easier. I mean, I was given a manual of that, as a version of that manual as a kid, but it was a defective manual that developed by parents who had their own problems. But you know, since none of us got that manual, there's only one way we work toward figuring this life out. And that's through trial and error. Our entire lives and the lives of everyone else is a never-ending string of trials and errors. And on any given day, we will err, and often towards others. And they will err towards us. Again, because none of us got the manual and we're all human. You know, today I work at being a better person by, by reading a book that is, to some extent, that manual. You know, the big book. It taught me how to have a better view of myself. It helped me to lose that fear of being less than. The book and the steps have also taught me that it's crucial to continue to self-inspect. The reason I believe it's vital to continue to go through the steps, no matter how much time you have, is that we're different people each time we go through them. You know, hopefully better people. Better people, though, in constant need of improvement. I mean, I put things down on my last fourth step that I didn't even think were wrong on my first one. And the result of having this good sense of self, in a sense that one's self is perfectly fine and in accordance, as much as humanly possible, with what is taught in the steps in the big book, is that we're not easily swayed by others' thoughts and opinions of us. In fact, I was taught someone else's opinion of me is none of my business. And as a result, we learn an incredibly important life lesson that in life we need to act, not react. The upside of getting that attitude toward life is that we become the authors of our days, not just participants. The main developed benefit of the steps to me is the development of a strong sense of empathy and compassion. When I have compassion for myself, and I know I'm doing the best I can today, and that when I make, you know, when I fall short, I make amends as quickly as I can. If I've worked through the steps, especially eight and nine, and I know I've cleaned up my past as well as I can, I can then move forward, knowing, as I said, I'm the best person I can be today. I mean, how can that not lead to self-compassion? That feeling that I'm okay just the way I am is also inextricably linked to the belief that the world is okay just as it is. You know, I don't have to like everything in the world or like everything in me, for that matter. I just have to accept. You know, to get to that mindset, to ha- you know, to get that mindset to happen, you know, it requires the development of some kind of a belief in a higher power. Now, for me, it's not a higher power that's going to guard me against bad things happening. It's not a higher power I can call on with my my little Santa Claus list of wants. For me personally, it's, it's not even a Judeo-Christian God as I was taught as a kid. You know, as I said in another special edition, I had to tear down that hand-me-down God I was given and rebuild the concept of a higher power with whom I had a connection. A higher power that would, as it says on page 45 in the big book, help me with my problem, or problems, actually. You know, to me today, my concept of a higher power really comes down to one important sentence. Everything's happening exactly as it's supposed to be. You know, as the poet Robert Browning said, "God's in His heaven, and all is right with the world." And from there, it's my job to accept whatever comes. And the code to that con- concept of acceptance is that quote: "No matter what, I will be taken care of." For me, that is the essence of the third and the eleventh steps. And the word "only" in the eleventh step is hugely crucial for me. If I pray for anything, it's simply. An attempt to figure out what I'm supposed to be learning from whatever has happened. What helps me with the concept of acceptance is the belief that I don't have to know the big picture. None of us knows the big picture. So many of the great disappointments in my life turned out to be the biggest blessings of my life. The trouble is, I didn't have the big picture, so I couldn't have known that that disappointment would cause a string of events that would lead or lead, lead. to that blessing that it turned out to be. And you know, I believe this is true not only for myself, but of larger things in the world. The me today, the one that thinks he's enough, doesn't need to rely on a finite self, just accept things as they are. And in terms of how this relates to self-compassion, my acceptance has to also extend to myself. Again, as that paragraph from acceptance was the answer to, told me, gotta quit criticizing God's handiwork. After all, not only do I not only know, not know the big picture of life, the universe, and everything, I don't know the big picture of John. I understand others have different beliefs than I do on, it, on many of these specifics, but I do know that most people in recovery have stopped trying to make things work to suit themselves. You know, that thing about trying to run the world is it's downright tiring. You know, for those of us who have faith in some kind of a higher power, We use this as a form of solace when things go wrong. We rarely, however, stop and think about, what am I supposed to learn from this when things go right? And it's important we do this as well. I need to emphasize when good things happen because the negative brain in my childhood wants to gloss over those times to get to the juicy, poor me parts. This concept of faith in something, even if it's as abstract as, quote, everything's happening just the way it's supposed to, it's the basis for a more peaceful life. I suppose there are some re- religious purists who would say, well, I must be something agnostic for such a simple definition of a higher power. Well, if I am, so be it, but for me, I'm not. The main thing I know today is that whatever that higher power is, it's not me. This belief has taken that kid in an adult suit that was launched into a world, riddled with fear, and sure that the world is a scary place, you know, Full of figurative monsters around every corner. And that belief has changed him. You know, the amount of fears I've had I had on my last board stuff was incredibly small. You know, my main fear was that of a permanent disability. And I didn't even really even have any fear of death. I mean, I admit I don't know what that transition is gonna be, but I think at the worst it'll be simple nothingness. And as a result of that way of thinking, I don't grieve as much as I once did when I lose a loved one. I mean, I still mourn for them and I miss them, but it's not the gut wrenching affair it was when I was younger. Why? Again, because I don't know the big picture. But, you know, we can choose to believe whatever big picture we want. I mean, what if death is something that when it happens, it turns out to be so great? We're all going to be going, oh, wow, if I didn't know it was like this. I'd offed myself a long time ago. I mean, does that sound far-fetched? Well, prove to me it's wrong. Again, this is part of the big picture I choose to believe. You know, there's something in philosophy called Pascal's Wager. It was presented by Blaise Pascal, who used it in terms of an afterlife, but I use it differently. Pascal said, God is or God is not. Reason cannot decide between the two alternatives. Now, if that sounds familiar, I'm pretty sure Pascal's God is or God is not was the basis for Bill Wilson's use of this similar phrase on page 53 in We Agnostics. But what Pascal went on to say was that if I believe in a higher power and I'm wrong, no harm, no foul. But if there is a higher power and an afterlife and you don't believe, he said, that's a different story and one with more dire consequences, you know, for those of his belief. Now, I prefer to look at Pascal's Wager for Me as having to do with acceptance, happiness, and surrender, and serenity, too. What if I'm wrong about my big picture and my belief in a higher power? What if I'm wrong if there's no higher power? Well, then, all I have to show for it is a happier and more serene life. Oh, darn. (laughs) You know, I've come to see that on some levels, acceptance is actually a very selfish thing. Whatever I may have to accept is either something that has already happened or something happening in the world over which I have no control. So at that point, I have one of two choices, to accept it or not accept it. Whatever I choice I make, it's not going to change that person, place, thing, or situation. What will change is how much stomach acid I'm generating. What can change is how much I choose to focus on that frustrating thing that I can't change or to look elsewhere to other things in the world, many of which make me happy. And who benefits from this change of view? Me. That's why I think acceptance is a selfish action, but, you know, one of the few good versions of selfishness. You know, when I was newly sober in my first program, life seemed like it was a constant state of drama. Every problem seemed huge. Every impediment in my life seemed insurmountable. And then I would look across the room at some of the old-timers I admired. They were always cool and calm and happy. And they would continue to be so, even when they got up and shared about going through really tough times. And I said to a friend once, you know, I want to be like those old-timers someday. You know, because I, right now I feel like life is this big stormy ocean with huge waves. And I'm in this tiny little inflatable life raft, and I'm getting tossed around by those waves. Those old-timers over there, though, they're different. They're like graceful ocean liners, just cutting through the waves, upright and steady. Well, today, you know, after a lot of work on myself and with a lot of help from a generous higher power, I think I've gotten to that point as well. I am one of those ocean liners. But, you know, being in this place as an ocean liner, looking from the inside outwards, I see a difference that the newcomer me couldn't see, looking at those ocean liners from the outside in. Yes, I am an ocean liner, gracefully moving through the stormy waves of life. But the reason I'm upright and steady is that I'm an ocean liner made of mesh. As a result, I'm not cutting through the waves. The waves are cutting through me. And when I don't resist, I can't be thrown around. And I don't have to resist because I know today, in my heart, like Browning said, God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. Thanks for letting me share.
0: Thank you so much, John, for this beautiful and insightful presentation this morning. Greatly appreciate your service and generosity to all of us. The share ID for this morning's presentation,
2: 14,095. That's 14095. You can pose a question to John by pressing
0: star one to unmute. I'll take your name. John's contact information, by the way, will be given at the conclusion of this recording. So stay tuned for that. Who has a question for John? Ginger C. Ginger. Loretta H. Loretta H. Morsey. Morsey. I think I missed somebody. This is Larry. Yeah, Larry. Gotcha. Thank you. Sandy S. Sandy S. Okay, well, let's start with this group. We'll go Ginger C. And then Larry K., please. Go ahead,
2: Ginger.
0: Everybody else, please mute.
4: Hi, John. Good morning, and thank you so much for your service. And powerful, beautiful talk. This is Ginger um, C. We're Yes. Hi, Ginger. Reader. Hi, John. Good morning. Wow, you good just morning. have me stuck on page 417. You know, um, when I complain about me, Or about you, you know, we focus so much on the gossip, the judgments, the thoughts, but we just so you're so absolutely right how much I'm dismissing me and what I'm doing to myself throughout that day. And then again, how am I permeating love into this world? So, um, you know, another big buzzword I'm hearing in 12 step rooms is how we're missing trauma as well and how a lot of people feel relapse is really connected there, and how other addictions pop up from the trauma that um, we're not addressing. And I'm just curious your take on that.
1: Oh, yes. Well, that's yeah, ironically, um, at this year's birthday party, I led a uh, workshop with Sheila Jay, who's my favorite person, pretty much my, one of my favorite people in program to listen to. And we did a thing on relapse and trauma. I, I did the first half of it, which had to do with relapse, and she took took it from there to talk about the trauma that is very often underneath all of the stuff like the thing I like to say is driving the engine of trauma, you know um, I, I
3: talk
1: about I talk all about my relapse cycle. I call it a relapse cycle because there's years of a you know week on, a week off, a month on a month off. But what I finally got to once the food was really down was during that relapse cycle. I was in a marriage I didn't want to be in, and I didn't want to look at it. I couldn't look at it because of my child of alcoholic caretaker personality. But there it was. Once I got the food down, I realized this was what the problem was. And, you know, I love that line if you want to find out what you're eating about, stop eating, you know. And, what I realize is that I think for a lot of people that they're in this relapse cycle and they can't get out of it and they're working as hard as they can and they're working steps and with sponsors and they can't get out of it. Chances are they have something like I had. I call them an iceberg. I call it there's an iceberg. You know, you can only see like 10% of the iceberg on the surface, but there's something under there. Now, it may very well not be in a bad marriage. Very often it's trauma and very often it's trauma from childhood. And if you don't get to that, really hard to ever be at least at the baseline everybody else is on because there's always some pain there that's driving you and you know we want to numb out some way and usually it's with the food for us and so I really believe you've got to work on that trauma while keeping the food down I'm a huge believer in outside help I think the best sponsor in the world still can't get to where a side, you know a therapist can because they can drop down a level that a good sponsor can't even see. So I really agree 100% trauma is at the base of almost all of, of uh, our, our, or a lot for a lot of people is at the base of, of their problems, especially if they can't get out of that relapse cycle. Thanks, Ginger.
0: Thank you for the question, Ginger C. Larry K., you're up.
2: Oh, uh, thanks. thanks, Leah. Thanks
0: for your service this morning. John, um, so appreciative of your presentation this morning and your experience
2: Um, and I wanted to ask you if you would be kind enough to speak to you spoke so eloquently about the human phenomenon
0: of trying to run the show in, in, in empathy and so forth would you speak John to your
2: experience with you know just this notion the paradox really of acceptance you spoke about acceptance that came through but the, 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 the paradox of
0: acceptance, but yet many of us are still in the program, um, you know, and we're trying to control other people, and um, and we have blind spots sometimes.
2: Would you speak to those blind spots from your personal experience, John? I'd appreciate that.
1: Sure. Great to hear you, Larry. A couple of my favorite people asking questions. Um, you know that you know. Ironically, one of the things about blind spots is you can't see it where they wouldn't be called blind spots. But I think for a lot of us, I mean, it's a constant vigilance that needs to be had because it's still going to you know begin because of the traumatic childhood I grew up in. Control is you know like the last thing I've really got to work on. In fact, I went to another program just to work on working on. How I had these control issues, I like to say. But again, to go back to what I said right near the beginning, control was it was in my myself as something I had to do if I was going to live in this scary world. And you know, there's that saying in program that fear is lack of faith. And if at some point you can go, you know what, I'm gonna be okay, and I don't have to control everybody else. You know, that's an important thing. And then also some of the mature, mature, maturity of saying, you know what, I don't get to always have it my way either. Some people are going to disagree with me. And, you know, I, I find today I have no trouble uh, with people disagreeing with me because I'm, I'm not perfect. I know that. And they may be totally right or maybe they're wrong, but they disagree with me. It's fine. You know, I don't have to take it that badly, you know, today. Um and, and and just know people have different opinions. I don't have to control you and make you see how my way is right. And again, why am I trying to show you and make you see my way is right? Because you keep scraping those layers because I'm really not good enough, and I've got to make sure that you think I'm good enough. And the only way I can do that is by showing you I'm right. But the thing about, again, you talk about control and blind spots. I don't care how long you got in program. Again, a blind spot's a blind spot, and I have to be on, you know, there's a great line from the American Revolution that said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And I think the price of abstinence and sobriety is eternal vigilance. Not only internal vigilance as to playing games with food, but also inter- eternal vigilance over my actions. Seeing that I try my best not to do actions, which in the moment I may not see as wrong, But we'll leave a bad taste in my mouth later because that bad taste in my mouth about myself, that can lead me to the food. I don't know if that helps, Larry, but good to hear you.
0: Thanks, Larry Kay, for the question. Loretta H., your turn.
5: Good morning, John. Thank you for your healing, healing message. I'm kind of doing a new fourth step and my sponsor's been talking about authenticity and I am just wondering you shared about that how do you keep that in your day
1: oh well that's a good question well I have to be willing to speak my truth uh even if I think you're not going to like to hear it you know um but I can say it in a nice way. I think before I was so afraid you wouldn't like me that if I disagreed with you, I couldn't let you know it. And and that's not being authentic. But I have to be able to, you know, um, be able to say it in a way that makes me feel okay. But, you know, it's again like one of the lines I've heard in, in another program. You know, mean what you say, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Meaning I have a right to stand up and say my thoughts, even if they disagree, you know, disagree with you, but I can do it in a nice way. You know, I remember when, you know, like when I was dating, you know, I, I, I felt so not good enough that if I went on a date and my, my date said she liked Chinese opera. Oh, I love Chinese opera. You know, I don't love Chinese opera. But why did I say it? Because I was so desperate that she liked me that if, if I said something that wasn't congruent with her likes, she was going to walk away. And the more I can realize I'm okay just the way I am, and I have a right to be myself, even if it's sometimes something another person might not like, as long as I'm not doing it in a in a, in a hurtful way, I have a right to speak my own truth. And again, I have a right to have a different belief than you. And, you know, the more self Acceptance you get, the more you're even willing to stand up and say your personal truth in a room full of people who have a different opinion. And that's not easy. You know, we all are prey to self, uh, to uh, peer pressure. But to be willing to be authentic and say, look, here's who I am, take her to leave. And at the end of the day, again, it's God's handiwork. I'm working as best as I can. And I hope that helped a little.
0: Thank you, Loretta. Maura Z, your turn.
5: Thank you, Leah John Kay. Thank you so very much for an absolutely phenomenal presentation. I am um going back through the steps again um and um you said something that is basically where I've been my whole belief in life, and that is something about um you know letting go of things finally and So I wrote down a question, and my question is, how do I put those things behind me? In other words, how do I stop the self-flagellation little trip I've been on for the last 50-plus years?
4: How do I do that finally?
1: Well, that's a good question. Well, you know, I think some of it's got to be, you know, it's got to be, and I think I said this earlier, that besides what am I supposed to be learning in terms of when something bad happens to me, you know, what am I, what am I supposed to have learned by whatever it is I still am beating myself up about, you know? And, and some of that could be, again, it could be the learning compassion toward others more because then all of a sudden, you know, I've got to realize, geez, you know, that person just did this bad to me, you know, in my time, you know, I I've done other things to other people. And the idea that, Again, if you're if you're yourself, you're you're holding up yourself in comparison to perfection, you know. But even if you've done, we've all done shitty things, and hopefully, one of the things about a fourth and fifth and, and an eighth and a ninth step is we gotta we gotta let go of them, and and it's not easy, especially if some of them were you know maybe particularly hurtful to people, but. You know, it's one of those things. It's easier said than done, but that I think I've got to accept. There was a, you know, whatever happened in everything, everything, including my own actions, is something I'm supposed to be learning from. You know, and even if I just I do something shitty today and I realize it ten seconds later, and I try to make amends, I still, it's part of me going to say, okay, what was I supposed to learn from that? You know, and sometimes it could just be, well, don't do that again, but. And it's hard for those of us who've had some things that were really big, and we we can even sometimes say and intellectually say, okay, yeah, I did this. I it's on my my uh, my amends list. I tried to make amends. And the question is, you know, again, sometimes these are amends we can't make to people because they're no longer there, or we can no longer find them. And at some point we can only do as good as we can do. i you know, I had a couple to make with, with, a parent that was dead and, you know, I've always said, Hey, you know, if you can go, go to a grave and read it over the grave, you know, who knows, you know, you don't know it can't be heard, you know, or just read it out loud. And you can only know, but we have to find a way to, you know, to, you know, to use a title of a book, drop the rock, you know, and lose that thing. That that that's eating us, and no, we're not that person anymore. And all we can do, we can't change the past. You know, you know that 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 whole idea of, of you know, you know, uh, giving up hope for a better past. It, it's an important thing. I, I don't know if that helped, but that's what I got.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Mora Z, Sandy S. Yes, your turn, Star One, to unmute.
3: Hi. Thank you, John. Sandy S. from Asheville, North Carolina. I loved your presentation. I was really surprised at your topic, pleasantly surprised. And I find for me that the 10th and 11th steps in the big book really, on some level, unintentionally reinforce my negativity about myself. Like when I start my day to ask God to divorce it from you know, all those negative things. And when I do a 10-step, I'm really looking at my defects. So I'm wondering, how do you build a positive self-view into a 10-step? In other words, like in addition to looking at my defects every day, which I do with a big magnifying glass, how do I look at what are my gifts or what did I do right? Or for the 11th step, can I start my day and instead of asking God to divorce it from negative things, can I ask God to put some positive
1: motivation?
3: In? <laughs> so I'm just wondering well, how you approach that.
1: Oh, well, that's a good how point. A good, yeah, well, like I, I, you know, like I said in earlier about, you know, I would read those things and get really down on myself. But let's face it, that that's a laundry list. None of us are going to get. Through with unscathed on any given day, no matter how long we've been in program. So yeah, you can get down and go. Oh jeez, you know. But I have a friend whose sponsor said I want you to also take a look at the things you did good this day, and and write you know and write those down you know because my my friend does a written ten step every night, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a perfectly good thing to balance out. So that you're not totally saying. And again, we're 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 taking these things of our day, and we're comparing them to absolutes, you know. And and so you know, none of us are going to get there. But it's sort of a checklist to say, okay, how did they do? I mean, today I don't do the kind of tenth step I did when I was reasonably new in program. I I tend to you know, at the lights out, say, okay, how do things go today? You know, did I? What do I? You know, can I think of something I need to make amends for? you know, gee, I wish I had done that better and done that better. But again, it's coming from a place of also knowing I'm a human being and I'm doing the best I can. And like I said, you know, this, the real thing, the underlying thing that hit me, that's changed in me, is the underlying um, constant thought, I'm still just a human being. You know, I'm still just a human being. Like Harlan says, no matter how, Long I'm in program, no matter how much I study the steps and, and memorize the big book, I don't rise above the level of heat to be. And on any given day, you know, I, uh, when I lead retreats, sometimes I'll start, up, start out by uh, saying two things. First of all, I'll say, I want to apologize right up, up front because you should have heard me five years ago. Five years ago, I had all the answers. Uh, and then the other thing I say is it's really weird to have, you know, 50 people hearing, you know, sitting here waiting to hear what I have to say because if I give you guys five minutes with my sponsor and my wife, you guys are going to be heading for the door, <laughs> you know, because they hear the real everything that's going on. And and it's, it's going to always be that way for everybody, even if you just work constantly. But the thing is you have to be willing to look in both directions, both at where I want to be, where I came from and what I am doing right. Because none of us, you know, are going to be 100% right, but none of us are 100% wrong either. And, again, a lot of that has to do with a lifetime of wanting to only focus on the negative. And that's why I say we've got to start turning that around. Again, doesn't mean we're, we get to say, oh, I'm always good no matter what I do. But, you know, beginning to see both sides, you know. We're, you know, again, we're not the best and we're not the worst. Anyway, I hope that helps.
0: Thank you, Sandy. Yes. Who else has a question for John this morning? Star one to unmute. I need your name. Irene. Sally A.
2: Jason K.
5: Judy K. Irene. Hi,
6: Melissa.
0: Okay. This is who I have. I have Irene, Sally A., Jason K., Melissa C. Who did I miss? Rachel K. Rachel K. Judy K. Thank you. That's it, Judy K. All right, let's go with this list, beginning with Irene
5: and then Sally A good morning thank you you so much for your service I am be a very gratefully recovering bulimic from Baton Rouge Louisiana John I am so grateful to be able to put the name with the face together and I'm so grateful and my heart leapt with joy when you talk about your um, LA birthday party uh, talk with uh, uh, Sheila and I'm just so grateful to have benefited from that experience. What a beautiful experience that was. Um, you you mentioned something about dropping the rock. I hear that a lot, and I'm not sure. Uh, I would love to hear your take and for you to explain and elaborate on that concept, because if I could drop the rock, that would be great, because I love your approach. For me, the food, this April the 4th, it will have been three years, the food It's really not a problem anymore. I'm not binging and purging, but it's the emotional whiplash that, you know, the self-flagellation that continues, not nearly as bad as it used to be, but it's still there. And I would love to drop the rock, and I'm not really sure what that means, but it sounds like it's something like I need to do, and I would love to get some Mm -hmm. instruction and explanations from you with with regard to that. Thank you.
1: Okay. Thanks. Um, sure, I'd be glad to talk about it. First, I just want to say something. I don't know if you guys noticed this or not. I am constantly amazed at the moderators on Vision for You because they'll say, is anyone who want to share? And there's this blare of 15 names being shouted at once. And somehow the moderators, Leah and other people, can manage to figure that out. Because if I was a moderator, I'd have just been like, I, I can't figure any of this out. So anyway, just, I've always wanted to mention that. So Drop the Rock, yeah, for me, it mainly has to do with with resentments and things like that. Ironically, that that rock metaphor, I heard that, and there's a, I'm a fan, I'm going to show my age here, uh, I'm a fan of a a rock group called Pink Floyd, and they had a a song that um, sort of said, and the bad blood turns to stone, and the stone drags us down, Makes us drown. In other words, there's nothing to be, especially when it comes to that. And the the Drop the Rock book. I don't know if that's AA conference approved or not. I I know it from AA. Um, I think it is, but I'm not 100 percent sure. And if I if I'm wrong and I've said it, then I, I probably shouldn't. Have. Um, but essentially, they're just a bunch of stories about people trying to you know get through resentments and things like that. And And it's just about the fact that there's nothing to be gained. You know, holding on to that rock doesn't accomplish anything, even if it's not a rock in the ocean drowning you. It's a rock, you know, tied to a rope that's then tied around us, our neck or something, and we've got to drag it along constantly. And that's why, you know, the idea of forgiveness is another huge part of it. You know, I've heard it said forgiveness is letting go of a possible different past. The past is past. And whatever it is, got to be willing to forgive only because, you know, I'm the one holding on to the rock. And so it's a matter of forgiveness and also about present. I think it's a combination of things about not forgiving people and then also resentments that I'm holding on to that, that drag on me. And the more, I mean... All of the things that comprise a rock, if you ever pick up a granite rock and look at it, it's made up of little dots of smaller rocks that are adhered together. But they're—you know that kind of a rock could be made up of thousands of little resentments and little things like that that are serving no purpose for us anymore. And the more we can sort of let that go and just move forward, you know, the better life is and the, and the lighter we get. We don't have to walk around with a rock all the time. I hope that helps.
0: Thanks, Irene B. Sally A.
2: Hi. Good morning. This is Sally A. from Jersey. Thank you so much, John. It was great meeting you in California at the birthday party. I do want to um, ask you a question. I've been having this burning question since I came into the rooms. Um, it really bothers me because I know that for a lot of us, um, addiction does stem from trauma. So. Um, from a bruised ego perspective as a child, like, and then when you hear that we're selfish and self-centered, and it's an ego-reducing program, I mean, that part I was confused about, like, you know, it's almost like, um, almost like a shaming concept. So I don't know if it's the wording that I have an issue with, um, because I try to be very compassionate and gentle with myself because I know my history um, and of many people that I know that have addictions that had traumatic past. So mm-hmm. how do I? How do? How does the steps? What do they mean by a ego reduction program? Like a ego reduction when there's an already bruised ego. So um, I just wanted you to speak on that if you can. Thank you so much.
1: Sure, Sally. I'll be glad to. And I and I I think you hit one of the phrases dead on the head that I agree with 100%, is it. I think it has more to do with the wording of certain things. You know. And again, when people are writing things down, they have a certain idea in their head, but they still hit, hit the paper as black and white ink on a page, which then people have to grab a hold of and pull up into their brains. And unfortunately, a lot of times what gets pulled up in their brain is folded into other things of their childhood or, or past that aren't, aren't correct you know, it's interesting, I'm working as a drug and alcohol counselor now, and, and I'm in group a lot of times with people who've been through the mill a number of times, and they have negative views of AA, and and they'll tell stories of having sponsors that were like drill sergeants, and, and you know, and, and I had to tell them, you know, there's, there's that millions, I don't know how many, I think I saw 2.1 million AA members in, in the United States. Uh, or, and it doesn't matter if it's AA, OA, or anything. There's this huge group of individuals who have all different ways of doing things. And I tell my patients, you know, that drill sergeant wouldn't work for me. You know, I need somebody who who can call me on my crap. I definitely need that. But to do it in a kind way, doing it with my best interests, you know, I've got a couple of sponsees that drive me crazy. But why they drive me crazy is they're doing self-defeating things, not because I don't like what they're doing and I'm trying to control them. Um, and, yeah, the, the phrase ego, I mean, I I understand it, and I think it's a matter of seeing it differently. If you sort of flip and think of ego and self, you know, what ego reduction is about, again, ego reduction is slightly different than than using the word ego, maybe you know more of a self reduction. In other words, what makes our lives better? And I said, you know, think in terms of the third step. You know, think of a gate, and you're opening a gate, and that gate is letting go of self, and just letting life and the world go through you like mesh. Um, that's the important thing. I, I think you, the, I think for some of us, there, it's a touchy phrase, you know, about about ego reduction. And at the end of the day, I've said to people who have no belief in a higher power, you know, I have, you know, people in the psychology field who just are just, you know, stone-cold atheists, and my problem with 12-step programs because of the word, the G word, as I like to call it, and I say, well, look, just, there's plenty of atheists in program, we have atheist meetings here in LA, if, you know, it, just think of it as a program of ego reduction,
3: and, and but
1: ego reduction meaning something different, meaning getting ourselves out of the way, not about shaming you and, and and that kind of thing. And and I know that wouldn't work for me. And again, over in over in my other program, we have people who say they're trying to help people as sponsors, but they're they're working out their own anger issues on people, unfortunately. And that's not, you know, the program I'm a part of. The program I'm a part of is about loving help toward others, not of shaming. And so I think it's more the phrase ego reduction that I could see could be a hot hot button. But try and think a bit more about if you get yourself out of the way, life gets a lot easier. And I hope that helps.
0: Thanks, Sally. a Jason, your turn.
2: Thank you
1: very much. Um, hi, John. I just was wondering
5: about how, like, self-acceptance and self-compassion can be turned into humor or laughing at yourself or, you know, I always, I'm constantly kind of, uh, you know, laughing at myself and picking, you know, fun at myself. And it, do you see that link with self-compassion and how those two kind of relate to each other?
1: <laughs> Great question, Jason. Nice to hear from you. Um, yeah, you know, you know, most of you guys may know or a decent amount of you guys may know I used to be a comedian. And I talked about the fact that I could make fun of everything in the world. The one thing I'd never make fun of was myself. You know, I was the touchiest person when I came to myself. And now the longer I'm at it, the less I am. I can laugh at myself now when I do something. One of the phrases I use a lot, especially when I just do something, just totally screw up. I'll just start laughing going, God, I hate being human. You know, and that's an important phrase. God, I hate being human. Because it reminds me that, yes, I made a mistake but I'm a human, and guess what? We're all going to make mistakes. And the more I could see it that way and get lighter with ourselves, I mean, one of the things I, uh, that brought me into my first program, when I came to my first program and I sat there and I was miserable and I heard people laughing, they were laughing at foibles, they are laughing about things that only other people who've been in that situation can laugh at, it gave me hope. It made me realize maybe I don't have to walk around just with this burden, and I could see things differently. And I love the phrase about wearing life as a loose garment, you know, not taking yourself too seriously. Rule 62. Because again, you know, I think I only took myself seriously because I was always embarrassed if I, didn't, if I wasn't perfect. You know, if I, if, I, if I tripped and fell on the sidewalk, I would get up and look around immediately. Because it didn't matter the fact that I fell. I had to look around and see if anybody saw me. And what, what was I going to do? If, I, if somebody saw me, I'd feel ashamed. Why? Because I tripped. Tripping is a human thing. Nobody goes about it to do it deliberately, but I would be ashamed about it. And now I don't have to be. If I trip and fall down, I can get up and go, God, I, I hate being human sometimes. And it's, it's fine. I hope that helps.
0: Thanks, Jason. Judy Kay, your turn, and then we'll hear from Melissa C.
6: Hi, this is Judy Kay. Thank you so much for, um, for your share. It was amazing. It was an amazing talk. You said, you said um, um, well, I'll use the phrase, what do I learn from this? That we, we learn from everything, um, you know, regarding everything that happens to us. Um, and many of us search from early on for a higher power, whether we're aware of it or not. And what the adults give us is, you know, a catechism or a list of mitzvot, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then we go on to study philosophy because, you know, we had, don't have the answers. Um, so I guess we're always looking to see what we can learn. But I'm wondering if you think that the traumas lead us—that trauma actually leads us to learning, <clears throat> to learning um, where we where. We're headed. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. Did you find that you had this kind of a path? Um and if guilt sucks, uh well shame makes us <laughs> beat ourselves up. And um mm-hmm. you know, guilt I think guilt can become shame. What happens to us also can make us feel ashamed, even though we're not we're not at the um cause of of feeling mm-hmm. ashamed. Yeah, right now. So, I got you. So my question is, from 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 shame and from um, trauma, um, do you think that that's what leads us closer to our higher power, or um, I don't know. I just wanted to put it out there and find out if you it's been your experience. Thanks. Okay. Thank
1: you. That's a great question. Well, one of the great things, if I can remember, to always be saying something to the effect of, "What am I? What can I learn from this?" Over things you know, that I'm not expecting, whether they be good or bad, that even just saying the phrase, what can I learn from this, reminds me I didn't make this choice. Somebody else did. And what can I learn from it is a way to to constantly remember that. And again, you know, the guilt versus shame. I mean, we should all have the capacity for guilt because if we don't, we're sociopaths. You know, we can go ahead and do anything and say, I don't have any guilt. But it, it has to be there. Again, it's a matter of moderation and realizing, okay, you know. And it's one thing to have a little, oh, man, I, I blew up at that person. I got to go make amends. That's the great thing about this program of saying, get rid of that guilt as quickly as you can. But, again, the concept that shame is is I'm a bad person versus guilt. Okay, I did something wrong. And, you know, the, the idea of trauma uh, trying to get us toward a higher power um, yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I ha- Again, I uh, the concept of, you know, what 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 kept me away from any kind of a belief in a higher power for a long time was I want the answers. Explain to me, how can there be a God if there's a Holocaust? How can there be this, if it is, or that? And I had to realize, you know, my, I had a whole sponsor to say, well, if you understood that, you'd be God, right? And I used to hate hearing that, but he was right. In other words, Part of my belief in a higher power can't include I'll believe in a higher power when you give me all the answers. You know? It's it's not called faith for any, no reason, you know. I have to trust that things are happening. Could I be totally wrong and things aren't happening for a reason? Sure. But I I don't know that and I don't know it isn't correct. So I'll choose to have the big picture be that everything's happening for a reason and it feels better. Even anything that's really, really bad has happened to me. And again, the only way I can get that really bad thing to not be carrying around for the rest rest of my life is to address it. And again, sometimes if some of us have really deep trauma, we've got to go outside of 12-step programs. I'm a huge believer in outside help. Bill Wilson was a huge believer in outside help. You know, the laws of psychology don't stop at the doors of an OA meeting. You know, we need help sometimes, especially if we've had a lot of trauma. We're wound, A lot of us are really wounded people, and we can't get better until we open that wound, clean it out, and then stitch it up. If we just try and stitch it up and we haven't addressed that stuff, it's just going to fester. So I hope that helps.
0: Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Judy K. Melissa C., it's your turn.
6: Hi, good morning. Thank you so much. This was really, really powerful, John. I really appreciated what you had to offer. Um, You know, and you started um, answering that before when you were talking about the drill sergeant um, sponsors. And, um, you know, I know for me, like, my greatest feelings of shame seem to come from what I ate, and my earliest sponsors and programs seem to confirm this belief, and, and I would be rejected you know, as soon as I picked up and I've I wanna know if you could speak about that because I've had people, you know, reach out to me who say, um, they picked up and the person who was guiding them said, get three days and then call me. And um mm. you know, I know I have an opinion about it, but I would just welcome your you know, what you feel sure about that and thank sure.
1: you. Sure. Okay, great. Yeah. It's funny, years ago I was in this uh bookstore it was sort of a new age kind of book, sure. I'll give you an idea. The name of it was The Bodhi Tree, okay? It gives you an idea of it. But I'm looking along, and I find a book, and it's all about sponsoring in 12-step programs. And I went, oh, my God, finally, the manual on how to be a sponsor. And so I, I, I buy it, and I go home, and I read it. It's, of course, it's all these stories from different people in all different 12-step programs about how they sponsor. And the maddening thing is one story, followed by another story that's 180 degrees different than the story before. And the next one is 180. In other words, it was a story showing all different sponsors and how all of them work differently. And one of the big ones has always been, if I have a spon- sponsee who's slipping, do I, do I stay with them or I don't I? And that, that is a huge one because on one hand, you don't want to discourage somebody, but, and then, but then the question is, well, am I, right, am I the right sponsor? If if they're still having a problem. Now, at the end of the day, I I think our higher power decides that whole thing. And I I do try and work, but I also, you know, I mean, yes, there's shame, but what should be really seen more than anything, let's face it, I mean, you get into this whole discussion, you know, AA purists say you never put yourself down on uh, your ninth, you know, on your ninth step. But I go, you know, for overreaders, we mainly hurt ourselves. Yes, we do hurt our family by not being there and maybe doing other things, but we do so much damage to ourselves. And let's face it, what is going out and eating and relapse but hurting ourselves? You know, and I can, if I go out and relapse, I can't go stand in front of a mirror and say, you're a good person if I go do it again, because if I believed I was a good person, I wouldn't relapse. So I need to work on that. Like you said, shame can be underneath that sometimes. And, you know it, it it does it it's so funny it's an interesting thing because Sheila and I have different feelings about this and again, Sheila's like my best friend in the program, and the one place we have we have a difference is in you know, I believe you you really can't go through the steps until you 've got food down, and she believes differently and and she says in her belief that that people who've had a lot of trauma as much as they want to they can't, and they need to work that trauma out, so continuing to go through the steps helps them. I've done that with some – I, I did it with one person who just couldn't stay absent. And I said, okay, let's do a fourth and fifth step. Let's do an eighth and ninth and see, even though you're still eating, get, see if getting rid of some of that garbage will do it. And I, I, But I only did it once. I'm not going to continue to co-sign what could be denial. But, um, but yeah, in terms of shame, in other words, it's, it's, it shouldn't be shame – as much as realizing who you're hurting by relapsing and if you are is there some reason you feel like you you're, you have to punish yourself and and i don't have an answer on that again none of us the important thing again that whole kids in adult suits none of us came out you know came out into this world wanting to be self destructive so there's something that we got in us that we you know again the steps and the and the work here can help turn around but we have this Identify that first, and sometimes that can also be outside help, like I said earlier. Anyway, I hope that helps.
0: Thank you, Melissa C. Rachel K. It's your turn to pose a question. Christina J. Hi, for
2: yes,
4: Rachel Kay. Thank this is, you. Hi, this is Rachel K. Thank you, John, so much for your share. Um, my question actually sort of follows on the last one, so I'm in a lot of meetings. Uh, other than a vision for you, where I see the phrase "progress not perfection" sort of misapplied, um, you know, it says spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Um, and while I am absolutely 100% against shaming someone who's in relapse or who, you know, is is binging or slipping or what have you. Um, I see sort of a movement of harm reduction, um, which I think is is dangerous to you know to us to ourselves and and lack of sort of being honest about the food and what a a, a drug effect it has um, and people you know picking up chips for multiple years who I suspect. Um, are not entirely abstinent the way OA has defined it. Um, how do you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: It's a good good question. Um, yes, and I agree. It always drives me crazy when I hear people say progress, not perfection. I say, go show that to me in the big book. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. It's spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection, you know. Um, you're never going to hear in an AA meeting, oh, you drank, it's okay, progress, not perfection. Um, but on the other hand, like you said, you know, and the the concept of harm reduction, um, at the end of the day, I believe my absence was a gift, an absolute gift from God. Why on that Monday did it start the chain that I had been trying for the last, God knows how many Mondays, to work? To me, a higher power said, okay, he's had enough. And so I believe that my absence is a gift, but I believe I'm the only one who can give it away. You know, no higher power is going to come down and yank abstinence out of anybody's hand. I will give it away. And what I tell a lot of sponsees is I want to plan. Yes, you cannot commit to being abstinent because that's a gift, but you can commit to putting as many impediments between you and that first compulsive bite as you need to. And you know, that, that, that phrase first compulsive bite used to be way more used than it is now because you've got to know where that line is. If you don't know where that line is, you know, you're going to go over it all the time. And, and the other thing about, yeah, harm reduction, there was a woman in, in my meetings who was 300 pounds, and you get up and say, well, I've been five years out of bulimia. And, and, and I remember talking to her one day, I said, you know, getting the food down and the bulimia down if it isn't pure, how do you grow? How do you grow if you're still using some kind of a crutch, some kind of a crutch to continue to get through life? You know, part of this, is, and I'll tell you, that I've seen people that are AA circuit speakers who come into OA, and they can't do it because they didn't realize that they've got, they had another house on the block they never dealt with, which was the food. If we have to have everything down and dealing with life on life's terms before we can really grow. Because otherwise we're, we're, you know, we're in some way numbing the pain or making the focus go to soft focus. But we can't grow that way. And, and part, you know, harm reduction, I mean, we, we talk about that in, with drugs and stuff like that. But you're not going to grow, you know. And that's the important thing. If you want to change things, you know, that line from program, nothing changes if nothing changes. And And, you know, I love, and I always joke about this. I said, you know, when the conference about, what was about four or five years ago, they changed the defini- definition of abstinence to include the phrase moving towards or being at a healthy body weight was huge. And I always joke that I said the conference did that to help people get abstinent, not to say they're abstinent. At the end of the day, who cares? When you walk out, you're in, you're in a meeting for an hour, a night or an hour and a half, but when you go out into the world, so you're going to feel good about yourself in a meeting and then, you know, be out in the world at 300 pounds and saying, hey, I have four, four years of abstinence. And it's, But it's not about the weight. It's about, again, it's about getting everything down so you can deal with life. And I don't believe, again, personal beliefs here, all of the stuff I said today, I don't believe our higher power wants us to be that. You know, I was called an elephant as a kid. Well, you know what? An elephant is a perfect weight for an elephant. God made the elephant that way, <laughs> but I don't believe it makes human beings the, the weights that some of us were when we came in. So anyway, I hope that helps.
0: Thanks, Rachel. Okay. I heard Christina J has a question and I'll take two others with questions before we wrap up the morning. Anyone else? Penny C.
5: Kathy
0: G. Kathy G. Excellent. Okay. Christina J., go ahead with your question, please. Star 1-9, mute.
7: Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Wonderful talk, and the questions have been stellar. Uh, Sorry for coming in too soon. I thought we were finished, but anyway, here I am. Uh, The first question had to do with trauma, and I know for myself that my disease got worse and worse and worse when I was in a marriage that, two years in, I knew, and I just, you know, I didn't do anything about it. I was young. Twenty years later, I finally walked out, and miracles began to happen in inside of me. I wasn't in program, so um, basically, life still happened. And I I still had my disease, and I still used. Um, recently, I had to walk away from a job Christina? in last April.
0: I'm going to In ask the interest of time, yes, please. Yeah. Thank my you. My question so much.
7: is, when you talked about your first marriage and you left it, or I don't know if I don't know if you left it, but if you did, did your mm-hmm. life change? Did you find recovery or did you keep relapsing?
1: Thank you. No. Okay, thanks for the question. No, that's exactly where the change started. Um, I had to get out of marriage and then I'll tell you, there was part of me, oh, my God, how am I going to do this again? I'm that not, I'm not caretaker personality child of alcoholics. Oh, my God, I can't do that. She's going to fall apart. She's, you know, and, again, I couldn't see the ego involved in that. I'm projecting ego that I'm so wonderful. How can that person live without me? And, and you know what happened? I got out of that marriage. It was really tough because I was abstinent by then. And it was tough. It was painful. But we moved on. And she found a wonderful guy. Um, and, and, you know, we, we sort of kept in touch. They were actually both in program. They, for, ironically, my, my first wife wasn't in program when we were married, but ended up in program, and her hu- husband was in program. And then I found a wonderful person. Again, it's that whole idea that I didn't know the big picture. And I was holding on to what, what I, again, you know, I tend to catastrophize the future so, oh my God, I can't do this. It's going to be the worst thing in the world when it was the best thing in the world. And again, it was like I said earlier, because I don't know the big picture, I don't see how some of the things that I thought were the worst things in the world ended up being the best things because I can't, you can't, you know, Steve Jobs had a line about you can't connect the, you can't connect the dots looking forwards. You can only connect the dots looking back. And, and I had to realize, yes, this was causing me some huge trauma. And, and and because I was just, if you walk around just incredibly unhappy all the time, how how can you not want to numb out? You know, either that or you're going to just walk around miserable. And either way is not a, a way to be living. Like it says in the, the two pages that are my fa- two favorite pages in the big book are 132 and 133. You know, they talk about God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And uh, I've got to be willing to go to any lengths to get better and to realize that maybe what, you know, I was doing my first wife as much of a disservice as I was to myself. Because if, I, if I'm in a marriage I don't want to be in, I'm, I'm not being true and I'm not being authentic and I'm harming maybe that person from going on and finding somebody who does want to be in a marriage with that person. So I don't know if that helps, but that's, that's what I got.
0: Thanks, Christina J. And Penny C. It's your turn.
3: Thanks, Leah, and thanks, John. Uh yeah, am Penny C recovered in near Boston. And uh John, at the beginning of your talk you mentioned uh, you quoted from the Just For Today that said, you know, um do something for someone else without getting uh caught or without being found <laughs> out can you, yeah. And I just heard a new t- that God's secret service. I love that. Um, mm-hmm. What kinds of what kind of actions uh, do you do to um, to um, help someone else and not get found out?
1: Sure. Um, well, I mean, if you just want to talk an overall thing, I mean, I, I give money to charities, and I don't, you know, make a big thing of it. But I, I mean, I do little things during the day. Uh, you know, uh, I'm walking with my wife through the park, and there's a piece of, you know. Garbage there in the middle of a beautifully green lawn area i 'll pick it up and walk it over to the garbage i mean it, it, they're little things they're just little things that I think I do to make the world a little better you know um, those are the kinds of you know little things i mean and i may even just it 's embarrassing to even say it here because you're saying you know it's like like uh, oh, please list the things that you don 't talk about because you know you want to be better. You know, it isn't like I sat there and said, oh, well, I'm going to pick that up because someday somebody's going to ask me on a special edition about it. But those are some of the little things. I look for little things, little things that would help people. I mean, you know, I work I work at this place where these – okay, give me a stupid example. I work at this 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 treatment center, and I'm a counselor. The people, for whatever reason, they cannot figure out – the, the lower-level people cannot figure out how to put – uh, the paper in the hand, the the, the the you know, like when you wash your hands and you go to pull the paper. And I went and figured it out, and I did it. Now, that's way below what I'm supposed to be doing, but nobody else could do it. So they would leave this big roll on the top of the thing, and people had to tear at it. But I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And whenever it's out, I just walk over, I get a new one, I put it in, and I don't come out and say, I did this. I just do it, and everybody... It helps everybody. And it's those kind of things. I really believe these little things you do day in and day out that just help make the world a better place, you know, it just, it does wonders, I think, for yourself. But you don't do them for any other reason more than, in other words, the the self-esteem part is the byproduct of doing good for good's sake. Not to say, oh, I'm going to do this so I'll have better self-esteem. But just because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Thanks to hear you, Penny.
0: Thank you, Penny C. And our final question for this morning comes from Kathy G.
8: Thanks, Leah. Good morning, John. Uh, Thanks so much for your talk. I really appreciate it. I have a sponsorship question. Um, I was curious if um, when taking a fifth step, if I hear some things that are concerning about some of the people on the list, like let's say the person that they had an issue with needed to make an amends with had a borderline personality disorder. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's always been bad yet. I feel that there's a component where the amend needs to be made because sometimes it's hard to see our part in those things because the violation against us has been so flagrant.
2: Mm.
3: So,
8: Just any thoughts you might have on dealing with how I could guide this person
1: most effectively? Yeah, well, no, it's a great question. Um, You know, some of these things are are real tough judgmental questions. You know, I I think it's more more of the the eighth step question. And I always say, I think, if there's any step that really needs guidance from a good sponsor, it's the eighth step, because I'm going to go... I'm going to go from one end of the spectrum, oh, I want to, I want to, uh, I bumped the kid on the playground in kindergarten, I got to go track them down and make amends, which of course is dumb, to wanting to gloss over and use that wonderful, except when to do so would injure them or others loophole to get out of amends I really do need to make. And that's why a sponsor really helps in a lot of respects. And and you may have a situation. Well, I'll give you an example. I, I mean, I had one one time. I was ju- I was trying to justify to a sponsor why I didn't make need, didn't need to make amends to this person. And I was like, well, you know, this guy did, you know, he was totally in the wrong. Ninety five percent of the time, I yeah, I had five percent, but he had ninety five percent. And if I go make amends to him. He's going to think that what he did was right, and he's going to harm others because he's he's going to hear me make amends. He's going to think he's right. You know, wonderful mental gymnastics to get to that point. And my sponsor just looked at me and said, "John, we're doing your amends. We're not doing his amends." And I was like, "Oh, damn! I hated to hear that." But there are going to be situations, and again, this is this except when to do so would injure them or others isn't just you know you had an affair or you 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 don't want to, you know, do it because, you you know, because it'll break open somebody's marriage or, you know. And I always say, you know, if you have a feeling, you know, you get people who want to put things on an amends list that really aren't amends, you know. You don't walk up to somebody and say, I want to make an amends to you because I always thought you were a jerk. (laughs) You know, I mean, you didn't do anything to him. You know, you feel he's a jerk. Okay, and that's not a right thing to do, but it's nothing to make amends for. But if you do have somebody who's got true mental illness, you are going to have to weigh some of that. But still, whenever possible, cleaning my side of the street is a hugely important thing to get that stuff out of the way and know I've done as much as I can to clean up my side of the street. Because if I don't, somewhere down the way, that could be, you know, you know moving the path just from staying abstinent toward heading back to the food. And... um yeah, again, being a sponsor means you know listening to those things and 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 sort of gaming out well, which things should I, you know, should those people be making amends for, and which you know should they may have to say, hey, you know what, you know, you know, I mean, if somebody's absolutely mentally ill, uh, maybe you know, making amends could you know could the person physically get violent or something like that. But on the whole, I think you err on the side of making the amends, even if it could be taken really badly I mean you can walk away once you've made your amends if the person wants to keep abusing again over in my other program we have the phrase don't be a doormat and it doesn't mean you have to sit around and continue to get abuse but to you make your amends and you know if the person just starts in on you I mean one of the things oh, I was taught by a sponsor one I really hated when you go to make amends say to that person when you're done making the amends is there anything I left out? I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, but it did it, it help sometimes. But anyway, I think, again, this eighth and ninth step is, is is again, it's just like acceptance. It's, it's selfish. We're doing this to get better. We are the end beneficiaries of a, of a, of, a, of a, as good of a, a eighth and ninth step as I can do. And I think we just, uh, unless – And, and, you know, if you're a sponsor and and you want to give some advice and you don't know, ask other people. You don't have to give that person's name, but say, look, here's the situation. I I mean, in what I do for a living now, sometimes it's like, geez, i got a patient who's this and this. What do you think? And I'll get other opinions on it because I I think it's an important thing to do. I'm not the, you know, the know-it-all of all times. And sometimes that whole idea of God as he speaks through a group conscience can help me a lot. Anyway, I hope that helps, Kathy.
5: Thanks so much, John.
0: Thank Mm you, Kathy. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, John, for such a powerful and outstanding and helpful presentation. Again, thank you. Share ID for today, 14,095. That's 14095. And we're going to close from page 164. Of course, you'll notice that it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. (laughs) Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got.